Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Yakir Englander, your host for today. Today, we're talking to Dr. Henry R. Kars. Welcome, Henry. Thank you for having me. So a few words about you. Um, Henry, you are a pilgrim. You're a poet. You're, you're a practical theologian. And a peace activist. You were born in Vermont where you came back. You are now in Vermont. However, for 40 years, you were living in the Middle East, which is a question that I think we're going to elaborate and learn much more when we're going to focus on your book. You are also the founder of Kids for Peace International, which is an interfaith youth movement in Jerusalem and in some major cities in the U.S. where youths are growing to learn to respect and, and having dignity and learn on each other in order to bring peace in Jerusalem among Muslim, Christian, and, and Jewish youth. And y- today we are going to focus on your book, Sinai, The Abandoned Emptiness, However, I want to mention another book that probably we will mention maybe later, which is No One Land, a book that I deeply love, as I loved your book on Sinai. So welcome again. Mm, thanks you. Thank, thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be with you. Great. So, Henry, my first question is, um, what have you made you to, to write this book on Sinai? And another question, which is inside the first one, is... You are such a word person. You love writing. You love translating. And here you choose to focus on pictures, on photographs that you taken in Sinai. <laughs> yes, that's true. It's uh, It was a bit of a departure for me. Um, the book itself was like, like every book I think that a writer writes, comes from a deep yearning to share something. And uh, of course, my first medium is the written word. So um, I had already written about my time in the Middle East, um, especially in Jerusalem, and especially in regards to the conflict, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and our efforts at peacemaking. And I felt a sense of overload and a sense that I was trying to express things that were so complex and so deep with the written word and that there was an aspect that was missing and that was the contemplative aspect, the aspect that that comes from silence, from mindfulness, from a deep um, seeing, a seeing beneath the surface conflict. And my experiences in the Sinai Desert were very much informed by a kind of wordlessness. And 
Uh, we'll speak later about this idea of the apophatic theology, the theology which was without, without form, without expression, without word. And being a word person, this has been unfamiliar territory. My, my mind and my brain are yearning for words. So I decided as a challenge to myself to look at the photographs that I had taken over the course of almost 40 years, going back to the Sinai wilderness again and again, and seeing if in these photographs I could find something like an icon. And, and as, as you know, and I, some of our listeners, I'm sure, are aware that an icon is not, not just a picture. An icon is a, is a window. Uh, a visual window, but really a window of the soul, a window of the heart. And I have a tremendous uh, respect for iconography. And I, I felt that perhaps in these photographs, I could find some kind of wordless window that would help myself and, and my readers to catch glimpses of this great wilderness reality which so far transcends words and um and it was with the help of my of my publisher and good friend that i was able to work on these photographs and it's largely um the work of my publisher marcus reichert who did an absolutely um amazing job with a bunch of old photographs which were not very good quality when i produced them and the, the photographs that are in the book are, are my photographs to a great extent. There are also, also some photographs from others, but all of them have been lovingly worked on in an iconographic way by uh, Marcus, Marcus Reichert. So I'm very grateful to him, and I'm very so, grateful for this opportunity to, uh, to look for icons. Hmm. So we will come to, maybe we will, um, we will come back to the icons. I, I wonder how in this dialogue between us, we will come back to that, but maybe, um, a more, uh, like a question that if you can elaborate for us, so what is a desert for you? So many of our, our listeners, uh, you know, maybe didn't had the chance to come to desert. I also wonder, since you travel a lot in the Middle East, like, can we speak about a desert? Like, is there some um, familiarity um, wherever you go to any kind of desert that you go? And I also wonder, um, Henry, I mean, a lot of the Christian and Jewish theology, at least in the first generations, is happening in the desert, right? I mean, God took them, the, the Israelis from Egypt and didn't send them straight to the land of Israel. First, they spend 40 years in desert. So, so I wonder where it come in your theology, like where, how you understand this role of the desert in our Christian Jewish um, theology. Yes, and it's also in Muslim theology, Akir. Our, our, the, the famous monotheistic triad is really, uh, from my perspective as a theologian, is really one spiritual experience seen from three sometimes radically different um, angles, but it's like one gem. And of course, the, the experience of the prophet is a wilderness experience. 
all of the early descriptions of the rise of Islam before it became a world power have to do really with the encounter uh, with the same divinity, uh, which is encountered in the Christian scriptures and the Jewish scriptures before them. So we include that. And absolutely, the desert is a very significant um, leitmotif, and even, as I would call it, a significant archetype in the uh, Judeo-Christian Islam, Islamic um, ethos and, and theology on its deepest level. And I'm speaking here about the contemplative level and um, about what maybe one, some listeners would call the mystical level. So this, this archetype of the desert um, appears in many descriptions of biblical, um, the biblical narrative, for example, just to speak about the Jewish and Christian scriptures um, for a moment. Uh, some scholars have described this as a story about a journey from a garden through a desert and to a city. So the, the desert mm. um, poses a kind of a threshold between the garden and the city. Um, I've, later, I'll come back to this because I've come to understand that this is also the spiritual journey on the contemplative and mystical level becomes a journey from the city through the desert and into the garden. Which is in a way, just to make sure, just to make sure that I understand. So is it in a way um, like a journey of any pilgrim who start in one place, go to another place, but then as you speak a lot in your PhD, he, the pilgrim must learn how to come back home? Yes, come back home, yes. But before we, become, before we come to the return, yes, I want to emphasize what you said about every pilgrimage. Already we've spoken about a journey. We're talking about a place, but already it's part of a journey. And that's very typical of pilgrimage theology, which is my, I want to say, my, my destiny as a theologian is to be a pilgrim theologian. So the journey is the spiritual experience. The desert plays a role in that journey. And yes, uh, the, the passage is in fact what is most important rather than the destination. So the desert does represent that aspect of pilgrimage, which is so important in the work of, for example, um, Edith and Victor Turner, who will be familiar to some of our listeners as um, great writers on the theology of pilgrimage. And their great work on um, image and pilgrimage in Christian tradition emphasizes the liminality of pilgrimage. And that's from the Latin limus, meaning a threshold. So again and again, both in biblical literature, but also in pilgrimage history, we return to this, this um, theme of going over a threshold, going over a threshold, going through an experience which leads to some other experience. So as some of our listeners will know about um, the pilgrimage studies in the work of Edith and, and Victor Turner, for example, they define liminality as an important part of pilgrimage. So that journey is going over a threshold. And a threshold really indicates some kind of difficulty. So the desert very much represents that threshold in the journey. Um, uh, some of the listeners will be familiar with terms like like thin place and sacred place. In that sense, the, the desert has that role. It is a place where those who um, obtain passage through the wilderness 
may achieve their heart's desire. Sometimes that's defined as the city, let's say, for example, in biblical terms, Jerusalem. But on a deeper level, in the mystical sense and in a contemplative sense, the women and men who went into the biblical wilderness at later periods, and I include the founder of, of Islam, but also especially the mystics of Christianity, they left the, they left the city, whether it was Byzantium or Rome or, or whatever, Alexandria, they left the city and they went into the desert seeking something more original, something more um, deeply uh, primordial in their own soul. And they, they described that as a garden, strangely enough. And, and in some paradoxical way, they discovered the Garden of Eden in this, what I call the abundant emptiness of the Sinai Desert and the other deserts of the area. So for our listeners, just to make it clear, the Sinai Desert is one part of something called Arabia Deserta, which is really, a, you might call it the, the, the desert crescent. It, it's a huge moon-shaped geographical region of desert, which, which lies south of and underneath the Fertile Crescent. So it's been there the whole time through the development of culture and civilization throughout the Middle East. And it plays a very significant role, in my opinion, in the development of religious consciousness and spiritual experience throughout the developing years of the monotheistic religions and, and beyond. Thank you. So can you, can you please um, focus on a story or two stories that you know, the Jewish, Christian, or Islam traditions um, have, like maybe a story that can explain us a little bit more in details, or we can touch it, you know? It's like, I wonder how we can touch the role of the desert in these traditions. Yes, I'd be happy to, of course, and I'll try to try to make it brief. There's so many, um, so many narratives in the biblical traditions that are my um, particular interest. I'll pick two. Um, one is from the Hebrew scriptures. No, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll start with the later one. The one which is from the Christian scriptures, from the gospel scriptures of the early Christian communities. Um, some of our listeners will know about gospel of Luke. And in chapter four, there's a very famous description of how um, the uh, Rabbi Isa, peace and blessing be upon him. This is the term that I use to indicate uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and I use this term because of my awareness of the interfaith importance of the role of Jesus in uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and in the spiritual traditions that stem in these religions. Um, so this is an example. It's a story of how Jesus goes into the desert. And it's a very, very evocative tale. And I won't tell the whole story if you the listeners can easily open up the book of the Gospels and read it in, in chapter four of the Gospel of Luke. But what's important about this story is that it is an encounter. So here this, this person, uh, Jesus of Galilee, goes into the desert. So he's not going to the Sinai Desert. He's going to a desert that's close, closer to where he is. But there's plenty of deserts to choose from. And um, when he's there, he passes through an experience which is called the temptations. That's that's usually what it's called, and that's a very um, it's actually a very shallow translation of the biblical concept of nisayon, which is which is a trial, 
and a, a trial not like in a courthouse, not like standing before a judge, but more like a mm. trial of material, um, as for example, a metal might be tried, um, as uh, silver might be tried, a refining experience. And so I encourage um, readers of Luke not to see this as a kind of a messianic candy store that this person is led into in order to tempt him with sweet things. This is not a story about proving how strong he is. This is much more a, um, an exploration of what the desert can offer us. And so uh, when he is in the wilderness, he, is, he becomes aware of his hunger. And of course, um, the, the Satan who is there, who is a, a personage who in contemplative traditions is there in order to wake us up, um, offers, um, invites him to turn the rocks into bread. So that the basic uh, yearning that we have is a yearning to sustain ourselves, to survive, to eat. And, uh, and in this passage, Bread is counterpointed with the word of God, the word of the divine. And in the next stage, um, he has shown all the kingdoms of the world and is told that all he needs to do is to, to bow down and worship um, Satan and he will receive everything. So this is another level of encountering who we are and what we yearn for, that we yearn for power, we yearn for recognition. And as a counterpoint to that, um, this, the text offers service, that the true power, the true kingdom, the true control that we can have in our lives is to be of service. And in the last passage, um, Satan says to him, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down from the temple and nothing will happen to you. You'll be lifted up by, by angels. And this, of course, has to do with immortality with the feeling, once again, the yearning that we have to survive anything, not to be vulnerable, the yearning that we have not to be frail, not to be mortal. And, and at the end of this passage, we are basically told that, that this person, Jesus, uh, embraces his mortality. So um, the, the three levels are another example of a passage Another example of a threshold, and it's not so much a threshold toward some kind of messianic vocation, although it's understood as that in the Christian tradition, but in a way it's a threshold towards an understanding of who we are as humans. And this understanding is given to us when we go into the wilderness, when we allow ourselves to be approached and addressed by these very yearnings um, that, we, that we carry within us. So it's a very powerful passage, and I think it, it shows uh, in a few short verses the great power that um, the desert has in the biblical tradition and the spiritual tradition of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. It's one of the passages. So I, I want to understand, so before we'll move to the, um, to the second example, if you have, I, I wonder about the first one, because... It's fascinating that you are opening your book by saying that if you think that you go to the desert in order to find quietness, silence, you're going to be surprised. There are so many noises, and the noises are noises from outside, from the sand, 
um, but it's also the noises that are coming from inside. And I think that in these stories that you just mentioned, um, we can learn that maybe, maybe something is happening to us in the desert that we cannot hide among, you know, a lot of noises that are happening in the city, right? And then like you are faced by the Saturn, which is part of who you are, part of your fears, desires, needs, and you need to choose like, can I go over them? How can can you can you ex- exactly. can, can you help me a little bit more? Very, thank you. It's very it's very true. In a way, your only choice is to go through this. And that's why the the Sufi tradition in the Islamic mystical tradition is that Shaitan, the this personage or force that we call Satan in English, is a a messenger of the divine. That this is a force that we have within us who also represents the divine way of challenging our own concepts challenging our own um our own ego in a way challenging what we think must be true what we think must be right and um forcing us to go through that so it is not only the outside voices that we need to divest ourselves of and that's what i that's why i opened my book in that way with a couple of funny stories about how I went into the desert thinking that I would find quiet and silence and peace, and it's the exact opposite. But it's not only that the desert itself physically is full of natural noises, the wind and the sand and so on, but that we are full. We are full of voices that emerge when the noises of the outside die away. And we can, we have we have a choice. We can either ignore those noises, try to shout them down, override them with our own ideas and our own sense of who we are, or we can pause and stop and be quiet and listen and understand that we carry thousands of voices within us and then to hear them and let them go. And I sense that in these biblical stories about famous biblical personages who go into the desert that there is an invitation to us not only to see them as someone who is you know, outside of ourselves and to admire them for their experience, but actually to accept this invitation to become ourselves challenged. And it doesn't need, you don't need to be in a physical wilderness. And you don't need to be out in the Sinai Desert. And in these times that we live in now, this is perhaps the most important teaching from the wilderness is that it is not the physical desert itself which provides this opportunity. We already carry that within us. If we have the opportunity to to stop, stop the busyness, uh, stop the conviction that we carry around with us, stop our concepts and encounter reality. So silence can be a word in quotation marks. We enter into it. So, yeah. So, so you travel a lot in in Sinai, and you're you are also um, walking a lot in um, you know on the in the forest of Vermont where you were born and where you are now. And I wonder about the quality of the desert. Like um, something for me as someone who grew up also next to the desert, I think about the desert as a place where 
you cannot run away about how nature is strong and can be danger. Um, there is something that you you just will not survive, like the sun. Everything is like very much on forte, you know, in a in a very high level voice, like the sun, the rocks. When you find the rocks, the sand, the amount of sands, and when there is a sandstorm, um, the the need for water, you know, and then and I and I wonder since you went again and again and again and you brought hundreds of pilgrims into the desert, which kind of quality of the desert you found there and you also found that pilgrims that you brought with you have got, which kind of gift they have got by being in the desert? That's a comp- That's a very complex question because the gift for each pilgrim is totally dependent upon the chapter in their lives in which they are walking when they enter the desert. And the same was true for me. So when I first entered the desert, I received a different gift from the one I receive now. I grew up in the in the woods and forests of Vermont in a very rural community. And one of the one of the great um, influences and inspirations of my childhood was Henry David Thoreau. And uh, in fact, I, I treasure a book of, of photographs with quotations from his um, Walden Pond. And uh, this, this book is titled, the quotation from one of his writings, In Wildness is the Preservation of the World. And, and I, I resonated to that. I'm not I didn't quite understand. Uh, in these days that we're living now, I feel that it's all the more true and all the more important to understand how the preservation of our world, uh, not just the world of human beings and human society, but also literally the preservation of the earth itself, which which gives us the nourishment, gives us the ability to be alive at all as a human species. That this preservation is not something to be taken for granted. It is something that is provided for in the natural order, but we have an impact on it. So this the impact of my early years in the forest of Vermont very much conditioned my encounter with the biblical deserts and, and wilderness through the biblical text and through my explorations and adventures in the deserts of the Middle East. And in both of these experiences, um, I encountered something which I think the, the great author Belden Lane has most beautifully expressed. And, and I can't find a better expression than his choice of words. And it's the expression which he chose to, to title his book on uh, wilderness theology. And that expression is the solace of fierce landscapes. It's beautiful. Um, his, his first, uh, Professor Lane, Belden Lane, first published an article in Christian Century. He entitled the article, Fierce Landscapes and the Indifference of God. That's a very difficult theological concept. When he published his book, he decided to choose a more accessible title, which really says the same, which is The Solace of Fierce Landscapes. And that is a paradox, because going into the forests of Vermont and the 
dead of winter at 20 below zero is as dangerous as going into the Sinai Desert at the height of summer mm. when uh, the temperature is 140, 110, uh, 40 plus degrees centigrade. In other words, it is a life-threatening condition. And at the same time, we keep returning because we're returning not for the challenge of overcoming nature, but for the comfort, strangely, the spiritual comfort of being overcome by nature. That we sense and know that we are not the center of the universe. And that we are, in some really truly spiritually worthwhile way, we are invited to be irrelevant. And, and that sounds harsh. It sounds strange in a way. But there is a there's Yeah, help us. Help us here. Please say more about it. I think it's because, and, and um, Professor Lane was aware of this, but all of the writers, and I include the women and men who wrote in the desert hundreds of years ago, those who actually wrote of their experience, and they were, they were few, but they're very precious. All of them explain that our greatest burden in life is not the sins that are visited upon us by others and is not the, um, the difficulties that life on this earth bring to us as a matter of course, that our greatest burden is the weightiness and the heaviness of ourselves, the, um, the inability of our inner eye to see reality and to live in the moment and to live simply, to live with holiness. This is, according to all of the writers, our greatest burden and uh, some theologians would call it sinfulness. But I see it simply as an existential burden that we understand, perhaps we're among the only creatures on earth who understand that we are not really understanding. <laughs> and this burdens us, and it causes us huge anxiety. And the desert offers us one golden and very rare opportunity to step out of the center of the universe, step out of the center of our conceptual world to be sidelined, if you wish, to, to be rendered small, to embrace our smallness, and to, en to enjoy it, to rejoice in it, to feel the solace of a landscape that is fierce and will not relent on our behalf, that we, we are faced with a God who will not mollycoddle us, to use the British term. A God who's, who's, or a divine essence whose reason for existence is not to take good care of the human creatures, but whose reason, whose existence is existence itself. And this is uh, a step beyond the benevolent, um, providential God of most religious traditions. And for that reason, Contemplatives and mystics who have taught from the desert have often been uh, persecuted and, and rejected by their own religious families. But again and again, the truth emerges. So there, I think that is the, one of the great callings of the desert, is a calling to emptiness, a calling to dispossession of everything that we, that we know, everything that we are attached to everything that we are convinced of, and that includes our dogmas. That includes the, the religious convictions that we have.
all of this, all of this is summarized in very ingenious ways in the scriptural text. So you mentioned, Henry, um, a second story, a second story that give maybe a glimpse to us, to the listeners about the desert. Yeah. I would love to hear that too. Yes. One of my favorites, also from the biblical tradition, I, I apologize. It's something I'm a, I'm a, a, a biblical scholar, so I'm most, most familiar with these stories. And this is a very well-known one about Elijah uh, in Hebrew, Eliyahu. So this is a, um, a man, we read about him in the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures in 1 Kings chapter 19, for those who want to look for the scripture. So after a long story, a very uh, complicated story, he goes into the wilderness. He goes into the Sinai Desert. And this um, desert is known uh, in this period of history as Horeb, H-O-R-E-B. So he goes to the mountain called Horeb. Now that that word comes from a biblical root, which means destruction. It's the same root that's used for the word for sword, something which destroys. So here is this this um, person going under great distress with great anxiety, fleeing, running, um, finding refuge in this place, which instead of offering him refuge, is going to offer him a kind of a devastation, a kind of a destruction. And here again, we have this this theme that the desert will destroy our expectations. And uh, he makes a long, long journey into the desert. So the story is bookended by a verse that says he goes several days' journey into the desert. And then at the end of this section, we are told that um, the divine speaks to him and tells him to return on your way into the desert. So this is this is a very typical liminality story in which the desert serves as a passage place and therefore as a place of understanding. And when he, while he is there, he goes into a cave. The story is very well known to many who have read this section. Um, and uh, he takes refuge in a cave. And some great um, experiences occur around him. There is, first of all, a huge wind. and then the scripture says that the Lord was not in the wind. So the divine, the essence of what he is seeking, is not in this great wind. And then there is an earthquake, and the Lord is not in the earthquake. And then there is a fire, and the Lord is not in the fire. So what's interesting about this is these are three of the classic four elements, the elements of the earth, air, earth, and fire. Wind is air, the earthquake is earth, and the fire is the fire. So what is the fourth element that's missing? It's the element of water, which is exactly what's missing in the desert. I mean, it's brilliant. As a narrative, it's, it, it has a tremendous amount of ingenious um, symbolism. And the last experience that he has is the most difficult to understand because it's very, very subtle, the exact opposite of the wind and the earthquake and the fire. And in Hebrew, it's called the cold mamadaka. Just three words in Hebrew, which have been translated and mistranslated and misunderstood. Some of the old translations say uh, a still small voice, but it's it's not. He didn't hear a still small voice. The, the The text says that he heard the voice of silence. What kind of silence? A sheer silence. Daka is a silence that is so thin that you could see right through it. You could hear right through it, as it were. But how can you hear the voice of silence? So it's a, it's a tremendous paradox, and it's an invitation to the exact paradox that 
we're speaking of all the time when we approach the desert, which is why I chose to subtitle the book, The Abundant Emptiness, which is two opposite things. How can something be empty and also abundant? And that's exactly the quality of the silence. But here, the reason I love the story is because the whole point of the story, the, the, the place, the holy place that the story is going to is not Mount Sinai, not Mount Horeb, not a particular place. It, it, the story is bringing us to silence. So we return again to the subject that we discussed earlier. What is this silence? Is it what I expect to find? Is it, is it the kind of quiet that will give me an ego massage? Will it allow me to go to sleep and to forget about my troubles? Do I feel lifted up by the divine and cradled like a baby so that nothing will ever harm me? No, it's the opposite of that. This is a silence that, like a sword, cuts right through everything that I knew before, renders me irrelevant even to my own history, and then returns me to the world. So it's a beautiful story about the entire pilgrimage of the desert in that it, it, and it, it establishes the story of a person, a human person who is forced into the desert against his own will, there encounters a silence that divests him of everything that he knew and everything that he was, and then he must return. He must return to his actual life. He must return to the daily existence of being a mortal human being, but he must bring with him something from this silence. It's a it's a classic story, and he's not, and he's good, yeah, and he's not even um, like you know he's not a person that's responsible on he only to himself, but he is a prophet who has something to teach the people, and I'm thinking about that since there is um, an incredible Jewish midrash that speaks about why God gave them. The Jewish people, like the Israelites, they gave um, God gave the Ten Commandments and then the five books of Moses in the desert, and not where maybe more naturally God should give it in the land of Israel. And the Midrash speaks about the fact that um, there are two explanations. Actually, there is one explanation that speaks about the Midbar as Makom Hefker. A place that do not doesn't belong to anyone, and also as a, as a reminder that even that the Jewish people believe that the five books of Moses belong to them, but actually it belongs to nature. And I think how beautiful it speaks with what you taught us. And also about the second explanation is that in the land of Israel, there are so many important places, and then there will be some kind of proud. And there is something about the desert which teach us um, modesty in, in a deep way. But where I want to understand from you is, since we don't speak about a journey of a private person, but we spoke about two incredible teachers and leaders, Prophet Elijah and, and Jesus, I wonder how a community who live in a city should maybe be in a relationship with the quality of the desert. Mm, very good point. 
Um, before I try to respond to that, I want to respond to what you said earlier about the Midrash um, and this concept of Hefker, that the desert represents that of the divine and the human, which does not belong to anyone in particular, cannot be claimed by me or by you. And that is part of the answer towards your community question, which is that the whole foundation of the community is an understanding that there are parts of life, there the, that the essence of life is not mine or yours, but ours. And in every time of extreme trial for the human species and for human societies, the bottom line lesson, which either we can learn from leaders who are inspired, leaders who, are, who have experience of spiritual reality, or we must learn it on our own from each other through the hard school of suffering, the, the, the lesson that we learn is that we, we travel this together, this journey we make together. And uh, there is a misconception that the journey into the desert is a solitary journey. This is partly because of the ethos, I think, especially in the United States, of the great um, independent individual, rugged individualism, and so on. But you are absolutely right. Eliyahu, Elijah, um, is destined to lead. At the same time, he is not an ideal person. He goes into the desert with blood on his hands. He has just killed 400 people. And not in a way that, that is uh, divinely ordained, as if there could be such a thing. This is, this is a frailty which is understood and is recognized in the text itself. He goes into the desert with blood on his hands, seeking a new understanding of his leadership, as if to say, is this what being a prophet means? That I have to defend the faith by slaughtering the prophets, uh, the priests of Baal. This is, this is a, a kind of mass insanity. And I, I think that that's a very sobering aspect of the story, because when he, when he goes in and he encounters the wilderness, he encounters all of these massive forces, the wind, the, the earthquake, the storm. The, and in the end, he encounters the, the sheerness of silence. Now. He experiences divesting. He experiences hefker, what the great desert writer uh, Jerome in the early Christian uh, canon, Jerome calls nudos amat. Nudos amat eremos, he says. The desert loves nakedness. Nudos amat eremos sums up the, um, sums up the way in which the desert strips us of our um of our concepts and makes us naked it makes us naked to ourselves so i'm glad you raised that because uh the idea of hefker because in a way what makes the pilgrimage to the desert unique is that it has no shrine it has no goal there is no achievement you cannot you cannot get you know a certificate and bring it home um you cannot claim to have prayed at the sacred place, all you can do is go in and experience the nakedness of silence and the nakedness of, of encounter with yourself in the eyes of the divine. So that restores again and again the same theme. So both in the story of uh, Rabbi Jesus, peace and blessing be upon him, from the story of Jesus in Luke 4, but also in the story of Elijah from 1 Kings chapter 19, we see that the the um, the leader first encounters frailty, mortality, 
the absolute existential um, necessity of being totally mortal, totally human, and not standing above the humans whom we are destined to lead. But if anything, standing below them, standing underneath them or, or supporting them from beneath. And uh, this was a lesson which Elijah really needed to learn. <laughs> he had a pretty healthy ego. <laughs> like any other good um, you know, leader who needs to, probably it's part of the ability for them to lead um, is to, to accept that too, right? Yes. Yes, and to use that, to use that strong ego and that strong sense of being called, strong sense of vocation, which is a good thing because it's a sense of worth. And it must, it, as, as part of an answer, I can't answer your question about community. I think you, you have the answer yourself. But a, a leader and a community are one body, one body. And I think that, that is what the secret, that is the secret of navigating through any existential threat to our actual existence as a community is to what extent are we as leaders, as teachers, and as creative artists, and as thinkers, and also as meditators and contemplatives, to what extent are we fully aware that we are one body? And as I sit in the forest trying to enter into silence, I am very aware of the pain all around me and within me, and of course, especially now, the pain out in the world as people struggle for their very lives. And I need to be part of that. I am part of that. Dr. Henry Arkars, the writer of Sinai's The Abundant Emptiness, thank you so much for being with us. You're more than welcome. May you know much silence in your lives. May it bring you great blessings. <laughs>